Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. I'm Don Martin. You can see the name on the screen there. Um, my wife and I are trustees at Antioch, and we're also the life group leaders for the City Centre Life Group. And this morning, I have a, another special appointment for this morning only. I'm the official scripture reader. And our reading this morning is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 to 18. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved Paul also wrote to you in the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. And this will result in their destruction. You already know these things, dear friends. So be on your guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you on Zoom and good morning to those of you who are joining us on YouTube. Um, Today, we are concluding our series on the book of 2 Peter. And in the text that we're looking at today, Peter recaps everything he's been talking about throughout this letter. Um, He talks about the return of Jesus. He talks about having a godly lifestyle. He talks about false teachers and their dangerous doctrine. And he talks about the hope that we have in Jesus. Um, It's actually a great summary of the whole series. 
But the main question that I want to look at today is the central question that Peter answers in this passage, which I could summarize with the, the, the old phrase that you may have heard before, which is, how now shall we live? How now shall we live? In other words, how should we live in light of all that Peter said in his letter, particularly in light of what he's saying about the return of Jesus? How shall we live? But before we can answer that question, we need to talk about what Peter's saying here about what he calls the day of the Lord. Now, this was the name the Old Testament used for the final day of judgment at the end of history, which Jesus explained would be the day he would return or what we often call the second coming. Um, we talked about this subject last week, but we need to talk about it again because Peter uses some rather alarming pass, uh, alarming language here to describe the day of the Lord. Uh, remember, the context that we looked at last week uh, follows this section where Peter addresses this accusation, this common accusation uh, coming from skeptics and scoffers who argued that since the second coming hasn't happened yet, it would never happen. But Peter pointed out that there are examples of God intervening in the natural course of events like Noah's flood. So it's entirely plausible that he will do so again at the end of history. The consistency of nature isn't necessarily proof that God won't return. Instead, the consistency of nature is proof of God's patience. Uh, he, said in these, he said these skeptics and scoffers were misinterpreting the reason for the delay in the day of the Lord. And he tells them that the delay isn't evidence of a false promise. It's evidence of God's patience. In other words, the delay in the second coming isn't because God wanted, uh, he didn't want anyone to perish, but for all men to be saved. But then in the text we're looking at today, Peter moves into it begins describing what the day of the Lord will actually be like. And to be honest, his description sounds pretty terrifying. I mean, look at verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And then he reiterates this in verse 12. He says, on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. Now that's, I think we'd all agree, pretty dramatic, uh, pretty dramatic description of what is coming. Um, um, <clears throat> and so basically, you know, I, uh, I want to point out that there's, there's three things that we can learn about the day of the Lord from these verses. First of all, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. That's the first point that he makes. He says, you know, he makes this interesting comparison. He says that the, the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Now, Peter didn't just come up with this illustration himself. This was an illustration that he heard Jesus use. Matthew records it for us that Jesus is teaching about his return. And he says in Matthew 24, he says, so you too must keep watch for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. 
you must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. So it's a simple illustration. You know, when do you expect a thief to come? <laughs> you know, when you least expect them. It's, it's, it's when you let your guard down that thieves break into your home. Um, I got a vivid illustration of this last spring. Uh, at my house, I have a little gym in my garage with a stationary bike that I use a lot for workouts. And, uh, and, and especially during lockdown, I was using that all the time. And one afternoon during the, the first lockdown, I was getting ready to do a workout. So I got all my cycling gear on and uh, went downstairs. But then I realized that I'd left a couple of things back upstairs in the house. So I ran back upstairs and left the garage door open. I couldn't have been gone for more than a minute. But as I was walking back down to my garage, a man in a hoodie came walking out of my garage, carrying my bicycle over his shoulder. And, and we made eye contact. And then I kind of realized what was going on. And I went, hey, and he took off running. Now, I'd like to think that he took off running because I was so intimidating. But since I was dressed in Lycra, that probably wasn't the reason. Anyway, I started chasing him down the street, and thankfully, after after not long, he, he dropped my bike, which is a good thing, because in the process of chasing after this guy, I pulled my hamstring <laughs> and was and pulled up kind of in a bit of a limp. Now, thankfully, there was only minor damage to my bike, and to be honest, I was disappointed that I didn't take the opportunity to shout, stop thief, which is really kind of a funny thing. You know, we always hear about that, but has any thief ever stopped when somebody yells that? Do they think, oh, somebody's telling me to stop. I should stop now. Anyway, but what surprised me about that event was that this thief came at the most unexpected moment possible. He came in the middle of the day, in the middle of lockdown, when everyone is almost guaranteed to be at home. And I was only gone for a minute. I mean, I didn't think someone would be so brazen as to try to steal something in that short a window of time, but he did. So thieves come when least expected. And that's what Jesus and Peter want us to understand about the second coming. The world will not see it coming. The world to the world, you know, things will just be carrying on much as they always have right up until the moment Jesus returns. Now, for the believer, the Bible does, does give us some signs that will alert us that the end is approaching, um, but we won't know the exact day or hour. And Jesus instructs, but, but Jesus in this passage, he's, he's instructing us that we need to be ready. You know, he's saying, you must keep watch. You must be ready. We're to live in such a way that, that, that we're ready to face the Lord, whether that day is today or 50 years from now. So that's the first thing that we can learn from what Peter's telling us here is that, you know, the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. But secondly, we need to understand that the day, as we read Peter's description about the day of the Lord, that Peter is using apocalyptic imagery to describe the indescribable. As I said earlier, if you take Peter's words at face value, it sounds terrifying what he's saying here. It sounds like the world is going to be destroyed and burnt up, but you need to understand that Peter is using apocalyptic language. Much of it is taken from the Old Testament, and it's similar to what we find in both in the book of Daniel and in the New Testament book of Revelation. So this shouldn't be understood as literal, blow-by-blow -blow description of events. Instead, it should be understood as an attempt to describe the indescribable. It would be like 
trying to explain to somebody from the first century about nuclear energy. It would be almost impossible for them to understand. So you'd have to use very creative illustrations to get anywhere near the reality of what you're trying to convey. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's stretching the limits of human language to communicate about events that are just very difficult to actually describe. And furthermore, as a Jew, Peter would never believe that the world would be literally destroyed, that it would cease to exist altogether. You know, the, the, the Jewish belief was that on the day of the Lord, the earth would be renewed and restored to what God intended. So just as the flood didn't destroy the world, but purged and cleansed the world and gave it a fresh start, so the fire that Peter is speaking about here will serve to cleanse and renew the world. Fire has you know, a purifying effect. Or, or, or think of a forest fire. In one sense, it destroys the forest. But in another sense, it allows the forest to renew and regenerate itself. And that brings us to the third point that Peter makes about the day of the Lord. And I don't want you to miss this in the midst of these alarming descriptions. Because the day of the Lord will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Peter describes this in verse 13. He says, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Imagine that, a, a world filled with God's righteousness. But when he says a new heavens and a new earth, that doesn't mean that there's no continuity between the present age and the age to come. I think many of us read this passage about the world being destroyed by fire and think that it's going to be the end of everything we know, which is understandably frightening. But that's not what Peter means when he's saying a new heavens and a new earth here. It, it, it's In one sense, it's a figure of speech. It's similar to what you'd say if you were renovating your kitchen. You know, if you put in new floors and new cabinets and you got new appliances in your kitchen, what would you say? You'd say, we have a new kitchen, but it's still a kitchen, right? It's, it's just vastly in, a vastly improved kitchen from what it was before. And that's what Peter means here. The new earth will still essentially be the same. Remember Jesus's promise at the end of Revelation. You know, one of the last things he says is he says, behold, I make all things new. And, and, and that's what I want us to understand is that Jesus will make all things new, not make all new things. There's a continuity between the present age and the age to come. It, it's not going to be something totally foreign to us. You know, for example, Isaiah tells us that in the new earth that the lamb will be able to lie down with the lion without fear. Now, notice that these are two creatures that we're very familiar with. They aren't all new creatures. They're creatures that we know very well, but, but in the new earth, they're free from the effects of the fall. And Peter tells us in Romans 8, or sorry, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation itself is longing for this day. He writes about it this way. He says, for creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are, which is the day of the Lord. Against its will... All creation was subjected to God's curse. He's talking about the fall of man. When Adam sinned, not only was mankind uh, subjected to uh, death and decay, but all creation was subjected to death and decay. And it says, but he says, but with eager hope, 
the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. I mean, imagine that. Imagine our world being free from death and decay. I mean, think about what a different place the earth would be. I think the implications of this are staggering. I mean, for example, I think this means that we're going to interact with animals differently. I mean, imagine being able to walk up to a lion and pet it without fear. I think this means that we will see the earth unblemished by our pollution or mistreatment. I think this means that there will not be diseases or pandemics, hallelujah. I think this, or, or, or natural disasters. I think this means that, um, uh, that, 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 that weather patterns will look different. I mean, imagine being able to live in England without perpetual cloud cover all winter long. I mean, just whatever you see in the biblical description of Eden, I think you can expect that in the new earth. But that's not all. I mean, Peter calls it a world filled with God's righteousness. I mean, what an incredible description. And, and these are the things that we often think of when we think about heaven, you know, but imagine living on this world and, and it being completely free of sin and death and injustice and pain. I mean, imagine having unrestricted access and communion with God. These are the kinds of things that, that the new earth is going to, uh, is going to be like, and that's what, that's what we're headed for. And that's what we have to look forward to. And that's why Peter describes believers as looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. They're not dreading the day of the Lord. These early believers are looking forward to it. And they're looking forward to it because they know the return of Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And it's also why the saints are pictured at the end of Revelation. They're saying, come Lord Jesus. They're longing for Jesus to return because they know that the day of Jesus' return is not a day of loss. It's a day when they gain everything. So that brings us back to our main question for today. You know, if, if all of this is true, if Jesus really is going to return one day, then how now shall we live? <laughs> what should our response be to the reality that Jesus is coming back? And we've already seen one of them, uh, that we should look forward to the return of Jesus. You know, what if instead of focusing on the fearful or the unknown, what if we chose to focus on the good things that the return of Jesus will bring? I mean, that's what I'm trying to get you to, to see this morning. But if you're, what, what if, you're not looking forward to it. Like what if, you know, if you're really honest with yourself, you kind of don't want Jesus to come back yet. If that's the case, I just want you to not beat yourself up about that. I want you to be gentle with yourself because there are lots of very valid reasons why you might be feeling that way. And one of the most important things you can do is figure out why you're feeling that way. Why you don't want Jesus to return yet. It may be that you have a loved one that doesn't know Jesus yet. It may be that you want to get married and have kids and that hasn't happened yet. But try to identify the reason you feel reluctant about the return of Jesus or, or apathetic about it. And then I want to encourage you to make this a place of dialogue with Jesus. Take your fear and your anxiety 
to him and turn it into a dialogue with him. He he will speak to you to your, to those fears and concerns that you have and bring peace if you'll just take them to him. Now, also, I need to sit, uh, balance this a little bit when we talk about looking forward to the return of Jesus because people have misinterpreted this at times. Uh, people have had uh, some pretty interesting responses to the return of Jesus over the years. You know, for example, does the fact that Jesus is returning mean that we should just check out from the world, that we should, you know, quit our jobs and just kind of wait for Jesus to come back? I mean, no. Paul addressed this specifically in 2 Thessalonians. He says he com he actually commands, he's very strong about it, he commands believers to be people who work and 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 carry out and hold a job. Or, you know, should we be people who sell everything we own and just kind of wait for Jesus to return? Um, there's one sect, the Millerites from New York State, who, who did just that. They became fixated on the return of Jesus and were convinced that he was going to return on a specific day in 1843. So they sold everything they owned and waited on rooftops for Jesus to return. But thankfully, that's not what Peter tells us to do. Instead, he tells us not to withdraw from the world, but to live holy lives. He says it this way in verse 11. He says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. I mean, you may have heard the phrase in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's the idea that he's trying to say here, that, that we shouldn't withdraw from the world. Instead, we need to engage the world but not by embracing its values, but by loving our neighbor and living holy lives. This is how Peter began this letter. If you remember nine weeks ago in the first, uh, the first two or three weeks of, of this series, we looked at all these ethical and moral th uh, exhortations that Peter began, uh, that, that Peter gave to believers. He's saying, look, our ethics, and the reason he does it is because our ethics are shaped by our eschatology. In other words, what we believe about the afterlife shapes what we do with our lives now. And this is true for everyone, not just Christians. I mean, everyone believes something about the afterlife, uh, whether, you know, if you're a Muslim, you believe in paradise, or if you're a Hindu, you believe in reincarnation, perhaps, or, or, or maybe if you're an atheist, you just believe that nothing happens in the afterlife, that you just, everything fades to black and that's it. Whatever, but my point is, whatever you believe about the afterlife determines how you live your life now. It determines what you value. It determines what you prioritize. It determines how you spend your time. And Peter is saying that since we know the day of the Lord is coming and that a new heaven and a new earth awaits, it should affect how we live now. It should affect our mindset. You know, for one thing, it takes the pressure off of this life to be heaven on earth. I think that's one reason so many of us are perpetually disappointed or angry in, in, with this life is because we feel like this is our one shot at happiness. And if we don't get it now, we never will. But this life will never fully satisfy. It's always going to fall short because we live in a fallen world. But as believers... We, we're okay with that. We can accept that because we know this life isn't all there is. We know the life we're really looking for is waiting for us when this life is through. But our belief in the second coming also motivates us to live holy and godly lives because 
we don't want to face Jesus on that day with the pain of knowing that we've been living in disobedience. I mean, I promise you, when you stand before Jesus, you will want to have lived your life wholly for him, not in some sort of, I got to earn my salvation by being a good person, but, be, but because on that day, we will see how worthy he really is. And you will see that living for him was not a waste that deprived you of happiness, but, but something that you're immensely thankful for. So Peter's telling us we should live holy and godly lives. And then he expands on this thought in verse 14. He says, and so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, while you're waiting for the return of Jesus, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And that phrase there that he uses for pure and blameless in the Greek, it's actually a reference to how he described the false teachers in chapter two. See, he called them a spot and a blemish on the church. And here he exhorts the church not to follow in their ways, to not be a spot and a blemish, but to instead be pure and blameless in his sight. Finally, Peter exhorts us to anchor ourselves in an ever-growing relationship with Jesus. He tells them in verse 17, he says, So be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of those wicked people and lose your secure footing. And I love the way that he describes this, of being carried away. I think it's a good description of the way that believers often get taken out. Now think of currents in the sea. Uh, they take you vast distances without realizing it. But Peter is referring to, to the, you know, he's talking here about um, the deceptions of the false teachers, but we could just as easily apply this to the currents of our culture. You know, if we're not careful, we're going to get carried away by them until we lose our secure footing or lose our faith altogether. You know, I remember when I was little, my family used to take summer holidays in Florida. And, you know, that was a special treat because we, I grew up in the mountains of Colorado. We were thousands of miles from the nearest ocean. So I didn't have much experience with the sea. And I remember how surprised I would be when, when I would run out into the waves and, and play for hours, you know, in the ocean. And, but after, when I was playing, I would look up after a while and realize that I had like shifted way down the beach. And, and that was so strange to me because I thought that I was in the same place. But actually what was happening was every time my feet left the bottom, the, the current would pull me a little further down the shoreline. But my slow drift was completely imperceptible to me. And I only learned, and, and so I realized that if I wanted to prevent that from happening, if I wanted to stay roughly in proximity to where my parents were, I had to regularly look ashore to where they were and, and actively kind of resist the current to make sure that I didn't drift away. And this is what Peter is telling us to do. We have to recognize that if we're not intentional, if we're not on our guard, the currents of our culture and the deceptions of false teachings will subtly shift us away from where we want to be. And just as I had to keep looking back ashore to where my parents were to keep from drifting away, we've got to regularly look to Jesus to keep us anchored. 
And that's the solution that Peter gives us about this in verse 18. He says, rather, instead of losing your own secure footing, rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to guard yourself against drifting away on the currents of culture and the deception of false teachers, you must be in an ever-growing relationship with Jesus. You need to be experiencing an ever-deepening understanding of his grace and growing in our knowledge of him. Not, and not just knowing about him, like you know, we know facts about historical figures, but actually knowing Jesus knowing what he's like, knowing how he cares about you, knowing his kindness and his love and his forgiveness. These things should be growing in us no matter how old we are or how long we've been a Christian. And it seems to me that in this passage, Peter is drawing a clear contrast between, you know, the, the way I would phrase it is drifting and growing. In a sense, we're either doing one or the other. You know, just like the tides, we're either coming in or we're going out. So, so as we close today, I want you to reflect on where you're at with Jesus this morning. You know, are, are you growing in your relationship with him or are you drifting further away? You know, as you think back over the, the pandemic this past year now, have you grown closer to Jesus in the course of all the, the trials of this past year or, or have you drifted? Wherever you're at today, though, I think this verse shows us that there's always an opportunity to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You know, maybe you had a great year. And the good news is that there's so much more available. We can never mine the full depths of Jesus. There's always more to learn. There's always more to discover. We can always grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's awesome news. But maybe... And I think it's likely, because let's be honest, it's been a hard year. Uh, you've, you've, you look at, you assess your life now and you realize, you know, maybe I have drifted away over the course of this past year. Well, the good news today is that today is an opportunity to stop the drift and turn back towards Jesus. Now, you may feel like that's impossible. You know, once, you know, we start to drift, sometimes it feels like we can't change that momentum. It feels very difficult to do that. But what do you do if you're being pulled out to sea by a riptide? You know, you'd cry out for help. You'd try to get a lifeguard's attention. You'd, you'd try to get other people's attention. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I want you to, I want to encourage you to, to ask other believers for help. I know we talk about this a lot here, but isolation is a killer for Christians. Um, you're not meant to live the Christian life alone. So if you're struggling, ask someone for help. Get other people around you. Don't just drift away in silence. This is one of the reasons the church exists is to provide strength for you when you're feeling weak. So to wrap things up, you know, how do we live? How, how do we, how now shall we live in light of the fact that Jesus is returning? Well, we look forward to the return of Jesus. We keep engaging with the world, but not by embracing the world's ways, but by living a lifestyle of holiness and godliness. And finally, we anchor ourselves in an ever-growing relationship with Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, Thank you that your return is not something that we must dread, that, but for every person who has put their faith in you is a day we can look forward to, 
a day when the kingdom of God will come to pass. But Lord, help us as we await that day to live lives of holiness and godliness. Help us not to be swept away by the currents of culture, but to draw near to you. And God, I pray that our relationship with you would grow and thrive in this season. And for every person who is struggling this morning, God, I ask that you that, that you would give them strength, not to, to give up or give in or, or, or yield to despair, but to reach out for you, Lord. I pray that you grant them the courage to reach out for help today. Bring people to mind that they can reach out to. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.